This is a very strange and frustrating story. To have your family member stolen, murdered, then missing. I'm Connie Walker, and this is Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo. It's such a mystery, such an impossible task. Please, help us find her. Finding Cleo. If you'd like to hear more, you can find the full season wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Angrignon Park, November 30th. The body of a 51-year-old man is discovered, beaten to death. The park's known as a gay hangout. 16-age skinheads are charged... When Yves Lalonde is found dead in late 1992, he becomes the 11th gay man murdered since the brutal killing of Joe Rose. Police say Yves Lalonde died at the hands of a skinhead gang that also liked to hunt down gay men. These are just the latest in a string of attacks against gays or people suspected of being gay. Today, Montreal... The term is gay bashing, and in the early 90s, it's everywhere. Within weeks, three more men are killed in the Montreal area. Daniel Lacombe, beaten to death at a roadside bathroom stop. Michael Hogg, stabbed to death in his home, and Robert Pinchot, stabbed in his apartment. Police now say that six killings since 1991 may be linked, and they're warning that a killer or killers is stalking gay men in the bars along this strip. Rosemary Thompson, CBC News, Montreal. I talk to Michael Hendricks a lot. Like on every single story, I would go to Michael Hendricks. And of course, the frustration level would go higher and higher and higher and higher because, you know, you go from one to 10 to 13. It's like, it's, it's horrific, right? And so for the community and for Michael Hendricks, he was at his wit's end and he felt that nobody cared. They figured we would just disappear and get bored of this and go away. But Michael Hendricks wasn't going away. Not until the murder stopped. Instead, he and fellow activist Roger Leclerc were about to escalate the fight. We will not accept no for an answer, and that we will do everything in our power to make sure that this commission and this inquiry goes forward. Today, Montreal's gay community said it's not going to take it anymore. It wants the Quebec Human Rights Commission to act and hold a public inquiry. At the end of that press conference, Roger Leclerc drops a bomb. As the journalists were packing up, one of them turned to Leclerc and said, Mr. Leclerc, what are you going to do if the government refuses to have the hearings you want? Roger, always very Cartesian and smart, turned to him, looked at him seriously and said, in that case, we'll have to accept that there is no homophobia and there's no discrimination against homosexuals, lesbians and whatnot. And we are wrong and this is a terrible mistake. So if everything is fine like this, we have to tell to all the gays and particularly these ones who are in the wardrobe. Wardrobe, as in wardrobe, as in those who were in the closet. That, well, come out. That's wonderful. We should celebrate. So we're going to rent the Olympic Stadium. 
We'll reserve the Stade de l'Epic and, and then we'll invite all of the homosexuals in Quebec to one big party that it's over. We're going to put all the, the homosexual judges and all the homosexual members of the National Assembly. We will send them letters confirming that we invite them. We will say publicly that we wrote to these people. So we'll, we'll do coming out. Outing. Outing. Publicly revealing that somebody is gay. The journalists laughed. They thought that was very funny. Nobody had their tape running. No one taped it. No one filmed it. It was an insider joke between Roger and the team, the various journalists, the teams that he knew quite well. We thought about that. I say it as a joke at the press conference, but it was real. I'm Francis Plourde, and this is The Village, The Montreal Murders. Well, I'll tell you this much. There are members of our community who are ready to take up arms. We don't wish that to happen, but there are people who are talking about it, for sure. When I started this investigation, I focused on police inaction around a series of gay murders. But I hadn't realized what an important role the AIDS epidemic played in fueling activism against that violence. Because the discrimination gay people faced was not just from police, it also played out in access to treatment and care. Between 1987 and 1992, in Montreal, Toronto and Vancouver, AIDS became the leading cause of death among young men. So when Roger Leclerc threatens to out-powerful men, it's a threat that comes from the trenches, from a man wielding his last weapon. This is episode 5, Out With Them All. Roger Leclerc est un radical de la cause gay. C'est un militant de... Radical. Radical. That's a description that stuck to Roger Leclerc. For making waves, for tirelessly pushing against the grain, for insisting and insisting in language so evocative that he became known as the silver-tongued warrior. By all accounts, he is one of the founding fathers of Quebec's gay rights movement. When I show up to meet him, he stands in the hallway, the light catching his full head of silver hair. At 72, He's a small and soft-spoken man. Votre anglais est vraiment bon en passant. Ah oui, mon Dieu. Ça dépend, c'est ça. Le matin, c'est plus facile. L'après-midi, OK. It's rolling, OK. So, so why is it important for you to talk about this period? Oh, God. We have to know where we come from. And gay community, gay man and the society in general, we forget. It's actually more than forgetting. It's a piece of history that most younger generations don't even know. 
I'm born in 50. So I was 12 where I realized I was, I fell in love with the arms of a baseball player at the park. At that time, homosexuality was a crime in Canada. It was even considered a form of mental illness. I told to my doctor, it, it's all start there. I was in therapy for uh, many months and I had the shock electric to cure me. Electroshock therapy. It is shocking. It is, it is terrible to, to put these therapies on, on a little boy as I was. Uh, it is terrible. It is the loss of my dignity. I wasn't dignified. Roger felt like a lab rat. He was just a boy, and he went along with it. And I agree with that. I didn't want to be gay. Who wants to be gay at that time? It was the condemnation of, of being outside of the world, outside of the game all the time, outside of your family. Who wants that? Nobody. So I agree. Yes, cure me, please. So I was cured. It's the reason why. So Roger lives a street life for several years. He marries a woman. They even have kids. But as they move to Montreal, it seems like the so-called cure is failing. I was afraid of Montreal. I was afraid about my homosexuality. And for me, Montreal, is, it was the place where we can live as a gay man. At that time, it was... Horrible, just to say to myself that I was gay. Saying I'm a gay man, I did that at 29. And it was terrible for me just to hear me saying this. And I've been married for six years and probably a very bad husband <laughs> sexually because I have, I have no interest really. And one night I just got with a man and it was a liberation. And uh, two days later I said to my wife, well, I'm gay. And that's it. It was just freedom. Roger picked a good time to come out. Things were slowly beginning to change in Quebec. In Canadian law as well. Pierre-Elliott Trudeau was justice minister at the time. As he put it... There's no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation, and I think that... This was a time of free love, and Roger was having the time of his life. You know, before AIDS, being gay was wonderful, because first we laughed, a lot. We have a sense of humor very specific. The bars, it was party all the time. Every time you're going to a bar, it was just a party. And we had sex a lot. I don't know how many thousand men I had sex with because it was free. We, I wasn't afraid that the person just uh, get enceinte. 
enceinte, pregnant. We were not as afraid about that. We had sexual disease, but it was cured with doctors, with pills, and that's it. But we had sex freely. After making up for all that lost time, Roger met his lover, André. Well, I met him in Quebec City. I was in a bar, a gay bar, and uh, he, he came to my table. And, Hi, how are you, etc. We exchanged our phone numbers, but that's it. Six months later, I just called him back uh, because probably I was alone or whatsoever. Probably two or three months later, we lived together. Before long, though, André got sick. As Roger recalls, his disease did not yet have a name. Its first official recognition would happen in 1981, when young and healthy gay men in major U.S. cities started getting sick and dying. Here in Montreal, rumors of a gay plague started spreading through the village. We heard about gay sickness, a gay virus or whatsoever. But it was in the United States. It wasn't here. So I went to the hospital and half of the floor was empty. And I got in front of the infirmière. I have to put a, all the costume, you know, protection costume, a mask, a hat, a gloves, a, a, a robe, everything. And I told her, it's stupid. I was sleeping with him last night. So why, well, you have to do that because we don't know. So he died and uh, he hadn't saw his family for six years because he was gay. And when he died, the family just take over the body. They just l'ont kidnappé. And uh, they all planned the funerals. I have to move because we, we had an apartment, but under his name. So I had to move from the apartment very fast. We were, were not invited at the funeral. We were maybe 12 of our gay men, uh, friends, on the back of the church on the last bench. The family was in, in front and that's it. Roger believes that André was among the first to die of AIDS in Quebec. It was horrible. We were just like dogs. André was 30 years old. He was too young and it was too fast. It took three months. In three months, he was well living and then dying in three months. It just almost killed me, I think. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? 
From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat. Available now. If you have sex with more than one partner, it's like Russian roulette, because you can get AIDS. Or you can get lucky. The truth about AIDS, the plague of the 80s. HIV, the human immunodeficiency virus, is the virus that is believed to cause AIDS. Have just one safe partner, or always use condoms. Always. The question is, when does your luck run out? AIDS is a killer. Protect yourself. I started to learn about AIDS in Toronto. We knew nothing about AIDS at that time. They were talking about that there was this disease that was killing gay men and everybody thought it was poppers. So we were like, okay, well, geez, that's a drag. Like, love my poppers. A study which shows that the lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer. Conspiracy, yes, it was gays. Yes, of course, with their way of living, it's normal that they're gonna be sick. I mean, I had a doctor in Montreal tell me, well, just don't go to New York. It was a New York thing and a San Francisco thing, and it, it wouldn't happen to us. In 1982, the American Centers for Disease Control declared AIDS a matter of urgent public health and scientific importance. Yet those in power ignored the early warnings. They even made fun of them like U.S. President Ronald Reagan joking with one of his advisors. It took a Hollywood icon to catch the disease for the world to pay attention. Mr. Rock Hudson has acquired immune deficiency syndrome, which was diagnosed over a year ago in the United States. He came to Paris to consult with a specialist in this disease. Only one hospital in France could help him, but to get in, he needed an official from the Reagan administration to make a request. That call never came, even though he and the Reagans were actually good friends. That neglect was felt by the thousands who had AIDS. Suddenly, people were dying, and it was related directly to their sexual lives. It was... Very common for people that serial converted to lose all their friends, their apartment, their job, everything. And all of it within a week or two. So you didn't talk. You didn't say anything about it. You kept it covered. But even to admit that you were gay, even to admit you were gay, you ran a risk of losing everything because gay was synonymous with being HIV positive. Uh, it was cra- I know it's crazy, but that's just the way it was. So for years, AIDS support here was handled by a clutch of community groups. 
It relied mostly on volunteers and the kindness of strangers. Strangers like Laura Gregain. She stepped up to help people in the late stages of the disease. I mean, really, these were young men. They were healthy otherwise, so strong hearts, good lungs, you know, all of that stuff. For some people, it just took forever, you know, just seemed to take forever. And it was more debilitating, more debilitating. And we were always looking for places for these guys because they didn't have family support and the need for hospice care was enormous. And there was only Lynn. There was only Shea Macuzin. There, you know, there were the regular uh, hospice, but you got on a waiting list to get up there. And you know, people were dying so quickly that they never got in to that. And we were always saying, is there room at Shea Macuzin? Is there room at Shea Macuzin? It's called Shima Cousin, my cousin's place. It's a foster home for people with AIDS. It's the only such home in Montreal for Anglophones. It just started because one friend had been put out his apartment by the landlord because he had AIDS. We were so afraid about AIDS. So Shima Cousin, Evelyn just said to that guy, just come home and she had many rooms. Just come home and we'll take care of you. She did that, and but after that, there was another one, another one, another one. But there are hundreds of people out there with AIDS that need a place to stay, and we can um, that's we can look at the waiting lists for other institutions and see that that's true. And so, she my cousin was DIY in the huge sense of the word. And, you know, a woman lesbian giving to gay men and women dying of AIDS in a time when people were running scared. I mean, what else is to say about Evelyn Baudouin? Like, that's like fucking sainthood, man. Evelyn Baudouin's apartment quickly became a place of last resort. You know, I do remember taking one guy there and I asked her if she needed help. She said, no, no, no. And she was getting him out of the car. It was just bones. He was, you know, so thin. And uh, he said, thank you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. You know, he was very grateful. And, and she put his arm around him and, and, and said, no, you're home now. You're home now. You don't, you don't have to go anywhere else. And she was so sweet to them. She was so kind. She was such a, a soft, warm person, you know, that you could, you would trust her with anything. What did Shema Cousin represent for those guys? Safety. More than anything else, it meant safety. You know, you weren't going to have to tell any stories. You weren't going to have to find a girlfriend to pretend with. You weren't going to have to uh, worry about what was going to be next. Uh, you know, it takes all of that away from it and all of all it is left. It was all with volunteers. And I remember she was interviewed on TV and she said one day, 
love won't do it all. We love our, our residents, and, and, but we need, some, we need support, financial support, to continue what we're doing. Evelyn Baudouin struggled to keep her hospice afloat. And a friend called on Roger for help. He told me, well, you should be on the board over there just to help them to get some money. So I said, yes, okay, fine. I, rem I do remember him. He was uh, a remarkable guy. He's still, <laughs> he's he, still alive. Is he? Yes. Good for him. <laughs> Good for him. How do you manage that? <laughs> no, it, it was a difficult time. It was a difficult time. I just felt like everybody around me was dying at that point. And, and it was, it was, it was a really, you know, I mean, I went in, into it with my eyes open. I knew people were going to die, you know. I lost all my friends. All my friends I had when I was 30 just died. And I'm not the only one. It's not something special. We're used to that. We got to funeral every week. I stopped one day. I just stopped going to funeral because I, I just can't stand it anymore. I just can't stand see the family who give the dignity to a, a body. Why didn't you give him before when he was alive? It was outrageous. I was enragé. I was, no, I just can't stand it. I can't, it was too much. Unlike their fellow activists, Michael Hendricks and his partner, René, are largely spared from the epidemic until December 31st, 1989, New Year's Eve. And we had a couple of beers. There were maybe six people, people we'd known a long time uh, there, and Luke showed up. And I asked him, uh, Luke, I haven't seen you in six months. Where have you been? And he said, I've been depressed. I said, boy troubles, so the joke, you know. And no, 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 it's worse than that. I said, it's not your career. And no, 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 everything's fine. What's the problem? He said, I'm seropositive. I just found out six months ago. I haven't been able to accept it. It's very hard. I said, oh, God, no. I said, that's, you know, that's terrible. He said, well... What you don't understand is that everybody else in this room is too, except you and Rennie. Why didn't anybody tell us? And then he said, because you, parce que vous allez nous faire tomber comme me. Because you'll ditch us as friends. It was when Luke told us that everybody was HIV positive that would, the penny fell, you know, it, doing. We had to accept it. Uh, it was impossible to lie to ourselves anymore or, or to lie to everyone about it. It just was terribly, terribly depressing. 
And what was particularly depressing was the, the attitude towards us, that we would be self-righteous or that we had opinions about whether people were guilty of being infected. You see, you, when you were HIV positive, it was your fault. And uh, that anybody would think that about us was really very, very unstabilizing. And that was really very difficult because our lives were good and we had great lives. And we weren't rich, but we had everything we wanted. And then, you know, there was no point in having all that when your world folds. And it did fold. I was profoundly affected. Uh, ACT UP had called a meeting for January, and we went immediately. We wanted desperately not to lose our friends. We went to show them that we were not afraid of people living with HIV, and that we did respect them, and that we cared. This is a scream of our anger and our anguish, so dig down deep inside while you're here and let it go. Michael joined ACT UP as it organized its first protest in Montreal, a die-in. People lay all over the street, clutching signs that said things like silence equals death or ACT UP for life. So ACT UP became extremely important because it was a method of expressing to our friends and other people in the gay community that we certainly weren't going to discriminate against them. We didn't blame them for being infected. We knew that they were completely innocent. I mean, nobody knew that it was a silent disease, you know. As Michael and his friends became increasingly involved in HIV-AIDS activism, they began thinking about the murders of gay men in a similar light. We'd been chatting about it, talking about it. Was there some connection? Was it driven by the same homophobia that was killing us in the hospitals. We felt the murders were motivated by the same thing that was killing us with HIV, that is neglect and hate, and that nobody paid any attention. So Michael Hendricks, Douglas Bouclé-Couvret, and David Shannon rallied the community around the murders. We formed something called the Committee sur la Violence, Committee on the Violence, and it was purely the violence question. So I went there and uh, identified about 12 or 13 gay men who were killed. And the crime wasn't solved by the police. And that's when Michael meets Roger, when they create the Comité sur la Violence. What's your reaction when you see him coming to that meeting? My God, are we lucky? We got him. Come here, sit at this table. And when he figured out what was going on, he said, well, maybe I could be president of this committee. Yes, you be president and spokesperson. Uh, his French is beautiful. He speaks really well. They were the one who told me maybe there's a serial killer. Uh, and how do you react when you hear about uh, this series of murders not taken seriously by the police? It was ambiguous. Ambigu. In a way, it was 
the way it is. The same thing that when uh, the doctor announced me I was seropositive, it was normal. I'm a gay man. I, I'm going to get AIDS. That's it. So I'm a gay man in the park. It's normal that I'll be killed. And This is what they were living. As a gay person, you were a second-class citizen. You had to accept that you were more at risk of getting sick or being killed. So that was part of my reaction. The other one was, it's terrible. The, the murders were just the point of the iceberg. We knew that there was murders, but these are the extreme of the normal violence we had. We knew that. Roger had witnessed it firsthand. Skinheads had attacked his lover in a park at night, breaking his jaw and his ribs. The violence was normal, but for me it was unacceptable. Something had to be done, and the only person who can do it, it's us. There's nobody else. So they go back to the community and tell them about their plan to demand an inquiry from the Human Rights Commission. And I ask them, listen, we're on the margin of the society. Do you want us to stay on the march or to get on the society? All the leaders said, no, we want to be on the society, whatever the price we have to pay. So we decide to work to be part of the society. And the only way was la Commission des Droits. There was no other ways. We were going to fight hard and all that, but we were not cutting it with the government. The Barassa government chose to ignore us, and they successfully did until this moment. The moment at the end of a press conference when Roger gets everyone's attention by threatening to out politicians. The journalist called me back and said, what is that outing? Are you going to do that? And we were prepared. And I said, yes, it's serious. I'm going to do that. I don't want to do that. The next day, one paper picks it up. In the bottom of the front page of the Devoir, it's, there's this article, you know, uh, uh, gays and lesbians threatened to out judges and members of uh, the National Assembly. And it just simply stated that Raji had made this threat, and he took it quite seriously. Le président de la Commission des droits, uh, the minister, the police chief, everybody asked us, to excuse because it's terrible to say that. But Roger doesn't apologize. Instead, he and his committee against violence double down. So we had a press conference where I didn't excuse. I didn't say I'm sorry. I said I'm going to do that. I don't have to excuse myself to claim my rights. But at this press conference, We had standing in the back some supporters. Among them were two brothers who claimed they'd each had sex with the same government official. We knew that. 
It's a controversial idea. Some gay activists are threatening to expose Quebec politicians, bureaucrats, and influential people who are keeping their homosexuality private. Well, it was going on all over North America, right? You know, come out of the closet, get out of the closet, you know, or we're going to out you. There was a lot of that going on. And I think it was, it was a big conversation within the gay community that if we can't be out, if we can't be open about who we are, we're never going to be able to advocate for change and to be accepted. I think it came more from the HIV AIDS movement. I really do, because I think that so many people were dying. So this whole thing of outing was big. It's so not Canadian to threaten outing. It was quite common in the United States, uh, particularly around the AIDS movement, but outing has never been done by uh, AIDS activists. It's always been done by journalists, and it's always done to people that uh, offend or do things uh, to the gay and lesbian community that is uh, considered and perceived as a setback. But, you know, nobody did it here. It was just not the style. Even back then, Roger had his reservations about outing. I hope I will never have to do that. I hope that the Quebec society is open enough to agree that we're victims of discrimination, to agree that there is necessity for public inquiry. I hope that from the bottom of my heart. But what I say, if, if that is not happening, we're going to make outing. I don't want to, to out someone. But I would be able to do it. One day, a, a journalist in an interview after that told me, well, it's terrible to, to do that to someone who's in the closet. It, it's his choice, the right of the people, and it's there. I told him, there is a war over there. We're dying of AIDS, we're dying of murders, we're dying of violence. So if the only instrument I have is a bazooka, I'm going to use a bazooka. So I don't want to out anybody, but I want discrimination to disappear and I'm gonna do what is needed to have that. In the end, Roger, Michael, and their group never outed anyone. They never had to. The phone rang at home and I picked it up and someone identified themselves as being from the Assemblée Nationale and representing the Premier of Quebec without mentioning his name and then said, would you be open to accepting public audiences in front of the Human Rights Commission of Quebec? And I couldn't believe it. We'd won. That was exactly what we wanted. It was far better. And it was groundbreaking, a first in North America. It would take months to prepare. But there was more. After dismissing their requests, the justice minister finally agreed to meet with them. And when he came, it was almost friendly, I would say. It was, well, bonjour, Monsieur Leclerc, ça va bien, etc. You know, it was like 
never thing happened before. We never asked for a meeting, never refused, nothing of that. He didn't speak about that to just say, yes, we're going to try to work with you, etc., etc. But it was almost friendly. Despite the win, Roger paid a price for his gesture of defiance. He was now a public persona. Homophobes had seen him on TV. And he became a target. When we came to outing moment, there I, I received a lot of uh, menace, threats at that time. And it was quite serious, quite frightening, I should say. police took those threats seriously. For weeks, Roger walked around town with bodyguards tailing him. And I received so much copies of uh, the Bible saying that I'm the worst thing on the earth or uh, saying uh, just be sure to be with someone because I'm going to kill you, you're just... So you received death threats and, and threats because you were exposed as, as a member of that group, as a gay man? Yeah, yeah. And because we were asking to the full recognition of what we were. So we just wanted to normalize the gay community. So there was people who just don't accept that. You know, there's no religion accepting gays. No one. When you read the Bible and the Koran, etc., you the worst, the worst thing you can be is be gay. And soon enough, the spotlight would be on the church and everything it hides. The police feel uncomfortable about it. The church feels uncomfortable. The parishioners. The fact is that the that he was gay and that uh, it was um, a sex crime. When a priest is found murdered on the eve of the human rights hearings, the Archbishop of Montreal comes calling, and an old enemy becomes an ally. If, however, the speculation is correct that this crime is in some way related to sexual orientation, then we are doubly outraged for it makes of it not simply a violent crime, but one motivated by hatred. Don't ask, don't tell. That's coming up on the next episode of The Village. The series is produced by Kerry Haber, Michel Gagnon, and me, Francis Plourde. Original concept by Justin Ling. Check out the previous two seasons of The Village wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find Radio-Canada's French-language production of Le Village on audio.ca. Our story editor is Chris Oak. Our digital producer is S.K. Robert. Special thanks to Dave Darney and Alex Laplante. Editing, mixing, and sound design by Julia Whitman. Kerry Haber is the series showrunner. Our senior producer is Cecil Fernandez. The director of CBC Podcasts is Arif Nuran. Thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.